Well, hey there, this is Cody Turner. So apparently there's a 70% chance of it raining tomorrow. And the likelihood that it does, you would be a fool not to find shelter. Because I don't think you want to get your nice shoes wet. And this podcast is the best place for you to do that. For this is Tent Talks, and you're listening to the Shelter from the Storm podcast network. In this episode, I speak with my pal and fellow instructor at Duke Tip, Tai Huan. Tai is teaching the biomedical engineering class here for the summer. And here we have a wide-ranging discussion about many things that pertain to Tai's interests. Broadly speaking, we talk about the future of engineering and technology. And I think I'll leave it at that. I appreciate Tai for coming on to the show. And I learned a lot in this conversation as well. And many, much of it was mind-boggling. So, I'll shut up. Without further preamble, I present to you, Tai Huan. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network. A place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. Storm coming, Mr. Wayne. And we're live. I'm here with my pal, Tai, fellow instructor at Duke TIP of Biomedical Engineering. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having me. So perhaps you could start just by talking about what you go to graduate school for and what motivated you to go to graduate school. Yeah, so I am started started my PhD program in biomedical engineering a year ago, so I just finished my first year. Right, biomedical engineering, yeah. what you're teaching. Yes. <laughs> and um, so I guess what motivated me is that, first, I re- it's always been intriguing to me about the aging process, mm-hmm. and specifically soft tissues aging, because it's feel to me always that you can reverse that process somehow, like skin and muscle and things like that, like it's on the outer part of your body. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I I go back to school partly because I want to understand more about that process and using engineering as a tool to maybe mitigate it or improve quality of life. And we um, talked about this the other day, but you're not necessarily trying to prevent aging, right? No. You're not trying to no. achieve immortality, no. right? There's this guy, Aubrey de Grey, I think yeah. his name is, and he's a researcher who thinks that we he's treating aging like a disease no. that can be cured. And we can reverse the cell, pr- the process of cell aging and yes. eventually human beings can reach something like immortality. Now that could happen in a f- maybe far future, but for me... That's not the motivation for Yeah, you. for me it's just more like understanding and mitigating and improve the quality of life of the people that go through, which is everybody will go through the aging process. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's um, inclusive, right, this process. Right. Yeah. So how do you go about reversing aging? Can you explain it in layman's terms? So... Um, there's not really a way to reverse it, reverse it yet, as we know. There's sun, suddenly this organism that can do it by literally um, link, uh, lengthen their tail more or uh, can actually rejuvenize their um, cells or whatever. But for humans, for the most part, um, the way that we using uh, engineer to combat or mitigate aging is that because we all have stem cells in your body. And you think right. of stem cell as like these like fancy thing that embryo only have, but you have tissue specific stem cells. For example, your skin will have your um, stem cell, skin stem cell that will come to and repair uh, the cells, the, the skin cell only. And your muscle cell the same, have your muscle stem cell that come and repair muscle cell only. Brain cell the same way. Everywhere in your body would have stem cell niche that live there. And right. constantly, they are, uh, it's called, um, um, they kind of inactivate it in a sense, and they only can be activated with like sudden response, like injury. Mm-hmm. For example, that's a big thing that can cause stem cells to be activated, or um, certain drug can do that, right? Yeah. You can induce it to be activated and start making. And for muscles, the easiest way to induce stem cells is to work out, right? Because you rip, whenever you work out, you, you injure your muscle basically, and that's how you be- get bigger and bigger muscle because you oh, I see. cause a stimulation for the stem cell to start building new muscle. Okay, so stem cell research is integral to this process. And you mentioned this distinction between embryo stem cells and other stem cells. And you noted that when most people think of stem cell research, they just think of the embryo stem cells. Yes. So the embryo stem cells, those are the cells that can pretty much take the form of any other cell in the body. They're they haven't u- committed yet. yet they're more them. universal, and yes. the other cells are domain-specific, Yes, you could say. so they call tissue-specific stem cell. Mm-hmm. And now we actually can 
it's called induced pluripotent stem cell, where you take a skin cells out and you induce it to go back to the stem stage of the original. But it's really hard okay. to do, and they find it very finicky because somehow they have these like memories of like, okay, I, I want to become stem cell. Mm. I mean skin cell, even though I'm now a original stem cell now. So it's kind of finicky. So for the most part, the induced pluripotent stem cell only used for like studying. They not really have any practical use yet. If okay. that makes sense, you study the model of it and see how it responds to certain treatment or whatever and see how you can control to it to become muscle or skin or whatever. But ultimately, uh, we have to rely on our stem cell that you have in our body. Right. Yeah, that, all, that, that living there forever. Um, so what are the function of these domain-specific stem cells? There you would just be recreating tissue so you can heal yeah, so different injuries? It's called regeneration, right? So yeah. our body have a certain capability to regenerate like broken bone. You can like go in there and fill in the place. Um, skin, if you like, don't have a big injury, like burn victim, right? Some, some degree of burn can heal by itself, right? Without any treatment further. But certain burn, it, because it's so much damage, the stem cell there cannot go in and repair it fast enough. Okay, so, so the research that you're doing would allow you to repair something that the body isn't capable of naturally repairing? Not like it's a, like it's so, yeah, when it's so large that the body, uh, either too, too, too late going there because there's a process called fibrosis where um, this thing called fibro fibroblast cells, and I'm feeling like we're talking too technical here, but <laughs> yeah. these cells basically, they want to come in and save your body as fast as they can. So mm -hmm. the stem cell is not acting fast enough, they'll come in and make like these like um, basically um, scar tissues, if that makes sense. So it's good for like structure, but it doesn't have any function. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense, because the tissue there is no longer muscle, it's just like a bunch of scar that like cross, basically it just breach the, the, the gap that the damage happened, if right. that makes sense. So is there a particular kind of domain specific stem cell that you want to do research so on? So because you know how PhD work is that they have to be accepted into a lab that mm -hmm. um, work on a specific part of the body or whatever um, therapy that they're working on and our lab specifically work with muscle. And you're at the University of Arkansas. Yes. Just yes. Um, and yeah, we work with muscle injury model that it's called volumetric loss, which is mostly happened in exclusively battle wound, where you have a chunk of your muscle literally get blown off by stepping on bomb or get shot or whatever, yeah. right? And that's where you don't get healed easy. Uh, but I was lucky enough that as soon as I started, they have a new model that they want to investigate is a, um, a shoulder injury. Because uh, statistically speaking, most people after the age of 60 will have some sort of shoulder chronic problems. Uh, because you would have some small damage on your muscle shoulder because you move a lot, right? Your shoulder constantly getting all these bombarded movement, your whole body. Uh, so most likely you would 75% plus after 70. Yeah. So you will get it. Um, and the problem is that when these muscle cells, when they, these muscle tissues uh, are damaged, they will become fat cells. Mm -hmm. and, and you can see that if it's no longer muscle, it's become fat, it's not only lost the function, we see that it actually causes pain when you are older. And this is a natural process yes. that happens to people? It's, it's not necessarily the so, result of some injury? Yeah, so it is a result of some injury because okay. most of the time you will have some kind of injury there. Injury there. But it's just aging, just make it harder on people to heal it. and It just it makes you more vulnerable. And also it's a progressive process where you cannot reverse it. It just becomes fat and more, and it's just like a spreading, right? Just spread and just spread and spread. Just muscle oozing into fat. Yeah, because you know your muscle constantly replacing with other muscle cells, right? If you don't say, work out, you're losing your muscle mass if that makes sense. So yeah. that place will be replaced never by staying, You're thing. never staying the same. If you're not getting better, you're getting worse. Yes, most of the time. Because yeah. the other man is training. Yeah. And also for old people the same way, not old people, but age in the geriatric mo uh, population, you will lose your muscle mass, mm -hmm. regardless what you do. Even if you work out, you're still losing your muscle mass, right? Because mm -hmm. it's just how the body work. So is there a particular reason that you want to study muscle regeneration in particular? Do you have a well, family member that got really... For the most part, I didn't have a the choice to pick what part, right? I would much prefer to study skin, but there's so many only only doing skin out there. So the, the funding is not there. In the skin fields? Yeah. So the muscle would be skin fields more niche. deep, bro. Yeah. So interesting. So how just briefly, what are the, some of the uses that embryo stem cells have that other domain specific stem cells don't? Yeah. So for the most part you can They're use a lot that more vast, on right? huh? They're a lot more vast. 
the functions best. of embryos. Yeah, but for the most part, you can use it on like an other human being because it's still a foreign things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I guess the reason why we study them because we want to know how the developments of stem cell are influenced naturally. Right? Because right now we induce it to become a certain cells after we take the embryo out. And of course they die after two weeks, that max. The, right. When they, um, the, st- the, the sperm meet the eggs and become a fertilized eggs, it dies after two weeks. There's no way for it to not die. Unless you freeze it or do something to it. Right? It's need the uterus to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But so well then why, why has so much fascination taking place in the media over stem cell research because that fascination has been due to embryo stem cells. Yeah, because the reason why, like, whenever you talk about um, conception, that's like only the hot topic, right? So you decide that if it is in, in your uterus, then it's, it's considered to many people that conception happened at this point where the, the egg is fertilized, mm-hmm. right? But for, I feel like you're giving me the talk. Yeah, so anyway. Um, <laughs> when a mommy likes it <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. But anyways, yeah. So, but for the for for this story, I don't I don't I don't consider that conception because you are purposely putting a sperm into an egg and it will not it's non-survival without interference. It's like for example, if you take an egg out of a woman, you have to do something to it, like freeze it or whatever, otherwise just die. So when you took it out of the body already, it basically I don't think that the same principle apply here. But they still treating it as like if it is a human being when it's the sperm meet the eggs. Okay, but that's ultimately based on a scientific misunderstanding, it sounds like you're saying. Well, not understanding, they misunderstanding, but they they just kind of like, they don't care if it's like non-viable without putting it back into the uterus. As far as they're concerned, it is a fully genome now that it's capable of becoming a human being. But Mm -hmm. I can make the same argument that the eggs was already can be manipulated to become a human being if you chose to nowadays. Okay. Yeah, just without, a, without even without So you can use it for cloning? Yes. Potentially? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah, because that's yeah. what I thought coming into this conversation. So I think. You, can, you can clone, yeah, you, when you make an embryo, you can clone another human being or whatever, but again, you have to put it back into the uterus mm-hmm. and it needs to, need to take, right? So putting it back doesn't mean that it will take. Okay. Because it needs to like attach to the wall and do all this chemical processes before it can like divide. Yeah, so we've never effectively cloned another human, if I'm recalling correctly, yes. but we have cloned some things, right? Haven't we cloned a Yeah, we cloned monkey. Yeah. And monkeys? Yeah, my primates. Oh, okay. Primates been successfully cloned. It just um cloning is not that easy, like I say, right? You have to like make the embryos and then you have to make sure they, they all survive and then you have to put them back into the uterus and then they need to survive. If we were able to effectively and safely clone human beings would you think that should be morally permissible? Yeah, I don't think so because... Playing God? Not playing God, but I think that it's, it's just going to, for the engineering or scientist's perspective, it's just going to reduce the amount of diversity, right? Because you clone him, that means that you're making the same genomes again. Mm-hmm. But we already have that version, mm-hmm. so why making the We've exact already one? seen that, dude. <laughs> Give Does that make new. sense? Not not such, but for example, like if you have like certain population of a human, somehow it reasons to a virus that not there yet, but mm-hmm. maybe in the next hundred years, somebody make the virus or it's just naturally evolved, it wipe out the rest of the human. But there will be, for sure, a certain population will survive. There's no such thing as a virus would wipe out the whole entire human species because we're so diverse now. Okay. If that makes sense. So diversity is important for human survival because yeah. if there was some mass plague, yes. we need that diversity to make sure that some people don't get infected with the d- disease. Yes. There will always be survival, for sure. Now, because we, we, we only get to the point of like very diverse in our society at this point. What about designer babies? The idea, so we've sequenced the human genome and there might be a yes. time in the future where you can just yes. pick the traits that your newborn baby is going to have. I know. But you want an IQ of whatever? Yes. Or so you want blonde hair? It is not menu. as easy as it sounds like because we know sun gene is very easy. Like eye color. Now you can change that. Like it's just like a few letters, right? But like for trait, like tall, it's like actually tons of different genes that make one specific phenotype, which is the actual thing that you see called phenotype. And genotype is just letter and sequences and whatever. So tallness is not just one gene. It's a bunch of different locations that work together. And those different things that work together also influence other things that's showing. Like say um, IQ, it could be associated with those the same 
Tong is gene. Does that make sense? But it's just mm-hmm. not all of them that doing that. Some part of that gene do that. Some part of this gene do that. But they overlap sometimes. So how far away is our current technology from effectively manipulating a complex gene like tallness? No, we don't understand it well enough to do that. We we know how to change it. We know exactly what affected it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. We just know that we just don't know well enough about it. We know certain region effectively causing it had to happen, but we don't know if it's gonna be causing other thing also or not. Do you think there'll be a time in the future when designer babies are a thing? Yeah, of course. If we allowed to do research then and with the help of big data and AI to process information, uh, then yeah, because everybody now like can access access their gene is seventy dollar for like get mm. your gene sequence and you have it store um, it's kind of public if you like basically sign the company the right to have it mm. so and they can sell it for the most part if because it's, they cannot own it right um, what I think is really fascinating about thinking about the ethics of this future technology is that oftentimes it cuts across political lines so if you're talking about designer babies or us taking mm-hmm. cognitive enhancers or merging ourselves with our technology. Mm-hmm. People on the left, I think, will often see this advancement as unjust because the wealthiest among us will be the first to have access to it. Yes. And in poor, the poor people won't be able to get it first. So then this is just going to give the wealthiest among us, the most advantaged among yeah. us, even yeah, more of, of an advantage that they already have. And that's function. Yes. That's going to function just to increase the massive inequality that already exists. Yes, and then people on the right might appeal to the plain God concern or yeah. the sacredness of humanity and the idea that we yeah. shouldn't merge ourselves with technology. There's something sacred about flesh. But you know, we think about designer baby, these thing like you have to go and then audit the gene or whatever. But um, it we only kind of design our baby to the point because we can test DNA now for the fetus before it's born, right? So we can know Down syndrome. We can know multiple diseases that can cause. And most women actually, um, or family, actually decided to abort the fetus before it was born, if they know there's going to be certain genetic disorder or certain defect to the fetus, right? Given that it's still like within the legal time frame of allow. Yeah, we were abortion. talking about this the other day in my class yeah. and we were discussing the ethics of abortion. So we already design our baby in that sense, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. We just don't edit the gene yet, but we only design it which one we're going to keep for the most part. Right, but we can't design it in a fine-tuned way. Not, down to it's going to be color. a while be- like I say, like just sentences. creating some anime emoji on your phone yeah. where you can just really design it yeah. to make it look like you. Yeah. Can do, we can't do that with a real human being. But yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm of course, I'm, I'm not for designing a baby in that sense, of right, course. Because right. um, I think it's just going to be decreasing of the genetic pool anyway, doing that. Because people are going to want just this specific one and yeah. they don't want the rest of it. And for science engineer, diversity is only good because yeah. we need it. Yeah, circling back to that abortion case, the essay that we read. It was on right women who they knew that their baby was gonna be deformed or something like mm-hmm. that, premature birth, and that there was a high probability of there not being a high quality of life. So then the question was, yes. some people will say that every human life has an infinite amount of value regardless of the quality or the likelihood that their mm-hmm. life is gonna be characterized by pleasure. But other yes. people who might be utilitarians would say that, no, if there's a high probability that their life is gonna be again, characterized by more hardship than pleasure, then just for utilitarian reasons, we shouldn't bring them into the world, right? We should... And also, we think about these things... We should spare them that pain. It's also affecting society, think about, and family. So if the one family member is maybe having some cognitive conditions, right, and they know it, and it will affect the family surrounding, specific that family, and also the community surround that family, right? Right. It has a broad impact to not just that one child, that wasn't born or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the future of technology and the possibility of us merging ourselves with our technology. We were talking about this the other day at dinner, and I thought it was really interesting because you think that at some point human beings will merge ourselves with our technology in some way. So I think the easiest way you can think of is like, yeah, prosthetic, right? So like right now we having better and better prosthetic prosthetic that can move and do certain thing and even like become like certain weapons. Is a prosthetic just an artificial limb, essentially? Yes, right, artificial limb. But um, now that for sure will be enhanced in the next 20 years. Uh, Within the next lifetime, we'll see all that fancy robotic prosthetic. prosthetic. And people might like just to like take that over their regular arm or whatever, since the technology is so accessible or not accessible, but um, in a controllable way. We didn't say so well. We might only do that. 
But the more important thing that I think that is will affect humanity, anything is AI, right? Mm-hmm. And we think AI is like these like robot thing that like take over humanity, but um, we can effectively if we know how to and we understand the brain well, we can integrate it in AI level onto our brain, right? And compute like computer. It so just merge like, ourselves with AI. Yes, basically. And we'd be able to find out just any fact or truth that is known as fast as a Google searches yes. because we'd be connected to the internet or something yeah, like that? basically. We already kind of connected to the internet and we yeah. already influenced by all these Our phones small... are kind of prosthetic limbs themselves. Yes, yes. exactly, right? Yeah. And they are only functional, like, besides just, like, information, they only do things like calling Uber or um, yeah. getting your fast light or getting you help or whatever, right? So they're only, like, multifunctional prosthetic in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, you might argue that our phones are actually, in a literal sense, extensions of our mind. Yes, There's this paper called The Extended Mind, or this Extended Mind Thesis in Philosophy, that was put forth by David Chalmers and some other dude who's escaping me. But, yeah, they argue that, um, and so far as the mind performs a particular function, our phones might perform that same function as well. And they're just mm-hmm. almost just as fast as the calculations that transpire in our brains. But yes. So it's not even a metaphor, it's actually an yes. extension of our mind. It is, yeah. But what if you can just like access this with thoughts instead of with motions, yeah. right? Because we're accessing it with motion now, and it's still slow, right? You don't even need to go to the trouble of pressing a button. Yes. It would just be a direct access. Yes. So you think that's going to happen? I think it will slowly happen. It's not going to be like over the next decades or something like that. What it will... Just some new technology comes out tomorrow? Yeah. Merge your maybe. mind! Yes, <laughs> Yeah, maybe. it'll be... Yeah, it may be like, at first, maybe like a say, a camera that integrated into your brain that can record it. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure if you have watched this episode of like Black Mirror or not, but um, there's an episode about these people that like, integrated this chip onto their brain, right? They store all the thing that they've seen and they can access it anytime oh, they yeah, want yeah. to. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Right? And that, I, I think that can, that can happen in the next couple of decades. Where right? you can just record your entire yeah. life and watch yes. it back. Mm-hmm. And in the episodes, the dude, spoiler alert, the dude <laughs> finds out that his wife was cheating or whatnot, yes, right? Yeah. By like going back and watching. Because he watched on the frame and whatnot to see the detail of what happened, right? Yeah. Yeah. But like it's but again, going back to that, that's not gonna be living in the present anymore, right? Because you constantly <laughs> kinda want to go back. <laughs> that's so true. And live in the past, right? Yeah. You were like, What happened <laughs> two years ago? What you did I do? You just become obsessed with watching the movie of your own life. Yeah, right. That's like the most narcissistic that's the most narcissistic but people will of the do future that. that I've ever heard. Yeah, but people will do that, right? If the technology yeah. are given to them, and some people would, for sure, will live in the past only. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were talking about this the other day for the listeners, just the importance of living in the present, because you're interested in Buddhism, like I am. Yes. And you've actually been on a silent meditation retreat. Yes. But, yeah. I mean, yeah, just living in the present is like the fundamental mental rule that I abide by, as we yeah. talked about. Because, mm-hmm. again, if you're anxious... Mm-hmm. about something in the future, it's not only going to affect your future, but it's also going to affect your present because you're not going to be living in the present because you're anxious. And the future is most likely not to be as good because you're just wrapped up in anxiety about it. And it might start a tendency of being anxious as, and not living in the present as you go forward. So not only it, it makes your future worse and it makes your present worse. Yes. So you should just be present and live in the moment. Yeah, for sure. And the, right. the moment's the only thing that ever exists. Yes. The future is just true. an anticipation in the present. Yeah. Um, and the past is really just like the little like memory that your brain makes. It's not even accurate anyway. People can manipulate memory now. We know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're just telling people a certain clue that not happened. They will think that it happened, even though it did not happen at all. Sometimes you're not even remembering the event, but you're me- remembering your memory of the event. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's, I think human memory is so unreliable. I think is, too much yeah. weight is given to eyewitness testimony in court yes. cases, for example. Yes. So now I think that in that case, maybe certain like recording, if you chose to, but maybe keep it as like just recording mm-hmm. and not like get to watch it whenever you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Maybe that would be okay. I don't know. Because it's going to happen. We only can recording anything we wanted to right now. It's just it's not constant. Happening. That's um, partially what we're yeah. doing with this podcast. We're yeah. literally eternalizing a moment in time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much why I started a podcast, just yeah. to eternalize conversations like this. Yes, it's not to for sure. gain a following. It's first and foremost, mm-hmm. like we just discussed, an audio journal for myself. Yeah. Um, and interesting, you talk, brought that point up. Um, they estimated that on the digital memory that we have, can wipe, be wiped out very easily, 
right? Because the way that we're storing them now is not very safe for the most part, right? We really? still have to store the thing on hardware. Think about all these things that you're storing. Mm-hmm. Like even on the cloud, the cloud is really just a bunch of computers sitting somewhere else that's storing that information anyway. I thought it was an actual cloud somewhere out there. <laughs> <laughs> just linked to the internet. Yeah, you know, you know how to work. Yeah. Well, yeah. actually, I, ha- I don't know. I haven't. I don't really know what the cloud is. Well, the cloud is just something that the geniuses speak about. It's the Apple just. Um, it's basically a <laughs> space cloud. that they put out there, and you can store it uh, and write. On this Google, on this tech company, they have effectively a warehouse of computers storing information. It need to have a physical location oh. to store information. So Think about it. It's still ultimately on hardware, and hardware it can is. be easily destroyed. Yeah, say if you have like a cascade event of like some kind of earthquake that take the whole entire Earth down or something like that. Even though people, certain species might survive, but certain physical thing might not be there anymore. Like a huge flood that flood everything. Mm-hmm. For example, right? Maybe a lot of species might be able to survive that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, say if you have like a um, another ice, uh, not ice age, but the melting of the the, the ice cap, right? And then the whole earth gonna be water, say. And this podcast is gonna be destroyed. Yeah, because it's in the physical locations. So then the next step would be saving it onto software. Uh, the next step would be saving it onto living things, right? Think about it. DNA is actually a storage device. Mm, right? Yeah. It's just letter. It stores traits yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, it stores this letter and this letter can be <laughs> translated. This is my elementary understanding of science. <laughs> I know, but yeah, basically yeah. it's storing information. It's that letter A, T, G, whatever, translate into certain thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because your body can effectively decoding that. Mm-hmm. So you just need to have a decoder device that can decode it, DNA. And people have only storing movies and books on DNA already. Oh, okay. Yes, so as long as you have you, a decoder. You can store digital works yes. on DNA, yeah, it's potentially. Because it's just a Wait, we're, a we're, we're already doing that? We're only doing it. It's just not cheap enough to do it yet, if that makes sense. <laughs> because if, if it explorable, engineer and scientists would explore it, right? The concept is so, if you make the link, think about it, because we're storing trait with mm-hmm. DNA letters, right? So why can't we just store a book with it? Right. It just translate. It just, you have to have a record, a, a translator basically to read it and translate into something that makes sense. It's the same way that information is stored nowadays too. It just stored into one zero one zero one zero one zero binary code. Right. Right. And then there's something that translate that into what you think of it information, Whoa. but it is just one zero one zero one zero one zero. That's pretty trippy. So unlike the designer babies. The technology for this is there. It's yeah. just not cheap enough, so that's why yes. it's not in the market yet. Yeah, no. Yeah, well, yeah, it's not on the market in the sense that it's not cheap enough. But yeah, as soon as they find a way to commercialize and make it cheap, they will. And it's really sto- it's so it, it's so dense, right? You can store about they say maybe like ten thousand book in one drop DNA, like a liquid wow. one drop. That's really an intimate merging of biological life with yes. technology. Think about I mean, we, that's as intimate as you can get. Yes. Yeah. Well, think about in the sense that we can like maybe store information in a living thing. What yeah. if it, DNA is just like translatable to like some secret document? Think about it. Right. And You're we can the do it. Storage. That. Yeah. You're the storage. Yeah. You are the storage, right? Yeah. You're already storing information, obviously. Right. You just can. You can actually add more to it. Bacteria can be added more DNA into that genome. We know that. And it goes to what we were just talking about, about memory. Memory, that's our main storage medium in terms of what we're storing inside of us right now. And it's so unreliable. Yes. It's so unreliable. Yeah, DNA is a lot better. But you have to have a decoder, right? Which is in your body is mRNA and all this stuff that decoding it and make it into like protein or whatever trait that you see you now at your, who you are as Cody. It's because something translate that DNA into something else that make the phenotype which is the thing that you see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you think all of this is for the good? Right? Yes, there's there's of this philosophy of transhumanism. I think <laughs> it's for the good because for the most part, if we don't do anything as human, at least we should store some information that we have learned, mm-hmm. right? Be able to at least do that. And then maybe some people, in, not people, but some intelligent species in the future can decode that somehow right. and learn from our mistake or at least read about our mistake. Right, so even after you die, the information would still be stored there in your DNA. It's not like the information would just be wiped yeah. out. DNA, is, you, if it, you there's a certain way you can keep in the DNA for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. The DNA can, yeah, last it for a long time, it would preserve right or whatever, yeah. But not just that particular technology, though. In general, this general process of us merging with our technology, yes, yes. do you just see that as the next logical step in Darwinian evolution? Yeah, I really It's think just so. been dumb things giving rise to more intelligent yeah. things, so... 
the next logical step would be us giving rise to some super intelligence or something like that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, I've been reading this author called Ray Kurzweil, and he has this book called The Singularity is Near, I'm like halfway through it or so. Yeah. And yeah, you're familiar with The Singularity? Well, I agree. I, living my life assuming that we are just a singularity always. We just what do you mean? somehow part of a branch of that singularity, but we oh. aren't connected back to that singularity. Does that make sense? Like so branch of tree, like you think these tree had a bunch of leaves and brain. You think of those things as like separate, but they're just one trees from the root. Mm, that that sounds sense. very Buddhist of you. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, do yes. you, so do you think that there's some cosmic consciousness that we're all a part of, and the idea that you and I are separated and we have our own individual spheres of subjective consciousness that can't be breached. That's just an illusion. We're all Not just an illusion, of some big but it's just maybe part of, like you say, you t- we talked about this before, and maybe it's just part of the way your body trying to take in and understand the universe. That's the only way you can survive or comprehend this world by understanding you as an individ- individual, but that's not part of the one. And by the one, do you mean something like a cosmic consciousness? Yeah, I, I really think that we are connected in some way already. Yeah. Uh, you can know, you know that we're connected somehow, even though we don't physically touch or see it. <laughs> this gets to the brainwaves thing. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I said I'd only mention it if it came up organically in the conversation, yeah. and now it has. Yeah, so, so for sure. Yeah, yeah. Brainwave is a real thing because you know that we, we studied and we, we know that uh, brainwave can influence. Well, yeah, so what are brainwaves first? What's a brainwave? Because it sounds, well, sounds like, kind of like magic. It's not. Well, again, like how do you communicate like your, your, your cells, like chemical signal and electrical signal, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, the electrical signal and uh, chemical signal, they produce few, right? Electrical few. Mag- uh, uh, yeah, so these ma- electrical few are. It's not, uh, it's not very strong. You cannot like receive it from far away. But, but think about it. What if you can magnify it, right? It's mm-hmm. like a radio wave. Like certain station will can be magnified to like further if you use the right device, mm-hmm. right? It's bigger, fancier radio uh, equipment can make it go to like hundred and thousand miles or even go outside of the Earth, mm-hmm. right? We the same way. We are we producing our constantly producing this wave that our brain. Because every time we send a uh, signal to our, my hand move, it make a, a, a wave, right? A magnet, um, magnetic field, or I would say electrical current field. That's the best way I can de- describe it. So this is an ultra-scientific way of saying that the vibes are real. Right? Yeah, but of course you can only feel it. Mm-hmm. You can only feel when you are in close proximity with the next person, right? Mm-hmm. Right, because okay, again, your, your brain wave is not that like... Yeah. that's strong it doesn't go past this certain area or whatever and let's go back to the point of like maybe certain people have better way to magnify their brain wave mm. in their gene or somehow they already doing that no they give off really strong vibes yeah yeah, yeah. i mean because independent of the science you do feel just as a matter of phenomenology vibes yes from people they yeah. have imminent vibes and the idea of brain waves is essentially just the idea that there's actually a scientific underpinning to that it's not just some illusion, right? Yes. Not just something that hippies say. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so do you think this opens the door for the possibility of telepathy? Yeah, of course. If we understand well enough to magnify it, right? Say, because we understand radio well enough to like send it to whatever place you want it to now, right? And does that make sense? It's going to mm-hmm. be the same way. If you connect it to a device or something, maybe yes. Uh, maybe you are connected to a device and you, when you turn it on, you can receive it from another person and pick that up and it magnify in your brain and you understand it somehow translate it back, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's within the realm, very, very possible actually, I think. Um, I'm just imagining a future where no one even speaks anymore. Everyone's just silent because everyone's just constantly but reading each other's minds. I think, I think there be if that happened, then you have, to, yeah, you have to like purposely taking it in, right? Right. And then, so maybe you just have to be privacy or something that you cannot take it whenever you want it to. Yeah. You constantly, I mean, it's really hard to not give, maybe we will wear a helmet that like protect their brainwave from like being broadcast or something like that. Like Magneto, right? Yeah. In the X-Men. <laughs> I, 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 this film like sounds like sci-fi, but it's, well, at it's one really point we have to like think about these things, right? If we actually can pick that up or whatever, then... It's not hippie nonsense or sci-fi. It's science. Yeah, it's science, yeah. 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 That's interesting. Um, what else was I just thinking about? Um, 
Well, oh, going back to the cosmic consciousness thing, the reason, one of the reasons how I got into Buddhism is I was writing my dissertation at William and Mary on this position in the philosophy of mind called panpsychism because I'm really into the philosophy of mind and consciousness. And panpsychism is a view that says consciousness is everywhere, or it exists at the fundamental level yeah. of reality. Mm-hmm. And there are two kinds of panpsychism depending on what your conception of fundamentality is. If you think that the fundamental level of reality is the small things, right, like the quirks that physics says, then panpsychism would say that these quirks are a little conscious. But there's what you might call a top-down conception of reality, according to which the fundamental level of reality is the universe itself. and all the things within the universe are just parts of the universe and they're not really distinct. There's just this one fundamental thing, the mm-hmm. universe. Yes. So that kind of aligns to what you were just saying. You combine panpsychism with that conception of fundamentality, which is called priority monism, just a term of jargon. Mm-hmm. It entails this view that is known as cosmopsychism, which is the idea that the universe itself is conscious. So I was reading all this stuff in analytic philosophy yeah. and I hadn't really learned any Buddhism mm or Hinduism or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And then I started looking into Buddhism and I realized that there's this whole branch of what you might call Eastern philosophy where this idea is pretty prominent or something close to this idea at least because Buddhists will constantly be talking about the conception of emptiness. So yes. it was this fast, particular fascination, fascination in analytic philosophy which kind of opened me up to these new schools of thought. Yes. Um, I just think it's interesting. Well, And there's and no like collaboration or interface between analytic philosophy and the Eastern philosophy that are both debating the same idea, which is And if you think about it, emptiness is not, I don't, I, I'm not gonna say that I'm an expert in Buddhist philosophy, but emptiness is really, for me, it's just about you clearing yourself as a self, because you all, all, you, all you can think of is yourself, right? You are a individual person and this is me. But the emptiness just basically telling you that maybe you're not that person. Just empty out you as an individual and mm-hmm. think of everything as one. That's mm-hmm. the emptiness concept to me. Right. If that makes sense. No, yeah, it does make yes. sense. And it kind of results from, in my mind, it results from this eradication of the boundary between subject-object. You think there's a subject experiencing the world and then there's this world of objects. But once that distinction just dissolves, all that's left is just the world. And sudden, that's it, it's just consciousness. Right. So things that you perceive to be out there are now just as much in here as they are out there, right? Yeah. Um, and and if you vice versa, things that are in here are now just yeah. as much out there because there isn't this stark wall that's erected. And if you like a fan of Einstein, then the, the relativity say that everything is hap- can happen. It's just the probability of it is just so low that you're not going to turn into a woman right now. But the chances <laughs> is you can you can calculate chance for you to become a woman right now. Right, there's, there's the math. Prob- there's some probability. Yes, there's there's <laughs> no such things. It's relativity, right? So there's no thing. It's like a hundred percent. There's a chance for this whole entire classroom turn into a giant boar, mm-hmm. and there's a chance for that to happen. It's just so low that we won't see it happening. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> wow. Um, and is that? Re- is that relative to quantum mechanics yes, as well? Yes, it is, yeah. Quantum Just the mechanics. idea that at bottom the universe is governed by probabilistic laws, yep. laws rather, yes. instead of these yes. determined mechanics. Yes. Yeah. Mechanical laws? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. And we know that on the, me- uh, on the quantum level, which electron, we can link things together or send things, like basically tele- teleport thing effectively, right? But it's, it's not really teleport in the sense that because the electron there is it's move, it have the same thing, it linked, but is that the same thing when it's disappeared at that instant? It might be a new electron that's popping yeah. into existence. Yeah. Well, it not, There's no way to know. It's not, yeah, it's just, we just know that it's like the same thing as far as we can tell, but what if it comes from something else, mm-hmm. right? Some people think that quantum mechanics gets you free will, and we, we talked about this the other day too, yeah. right? They think the idea that there's no free will is dependent upon the truth of determinism or the idea that everything is determined because if we're just physical beings then we're subject to these physical laws of nature like anything else just like a leaf blowing in the wind right Mm -hmm. if you had full omniscient knowledge of the physical universe you could predict where it's going to be the next second and similarly you could also predict what i'm going to say in the next second right it's all just happening and some people will say that well if quantum mechanics is true and the universe is fundamentally probabilistic then maybe we can salvage free will out of that. But randomness doesn't get you free will either, yeah. right? If there's something in my head that's going to dictate whatever, some neuron, take a just 
simple example in my head that's going to dictate whether I do action A or action B, and it's completely random at some time T whether I'm going to do it yes. or not, no. that doesn't give me free will either. That's just yeah. randomness. It's just randomness. Yeah. And those seem to be the two logical possibilities. So where do you get free will? Yeah. And mean, yeah. Like you say, I don't think we get free will. We just sensor <laughs> that take an input and we put our output and that's it. Yeah. And so I read this book called Free Will by Sam Harris and he says, he makes this point about These aren't original thoughts. These are all thoughts that I'm just stealing from people. <laughs> but he makes this point about how you don't get free will from determinism and you don't get it from probability. But if you introspect or you become good enough of a meditator, mm -hmm. you can also realize that just from a phenomenological point of view, you don't have free will either, right? Yeah. People think that we're the creator of our thoughts. And there's this thinker of thoughts. Yeah. And then that's having these thoughts, that's creating them. But we aren't the creators of our thoughts. We're just the conscious receivers. Right. Yes. Yeah. And Again, now, this is all just happening right yes. now. I'm just speaking out yes. loud to you. Yes. I don't know what I'm going to say yeah. yet. Anytime I stumble with my words, that's fundamentally mysterious to me. And yes. anytime I yeah. follow the For rules sure. of English grammar, and again, that is too. It's just happening. Again, the brain is this amazing thing that just like <laughs> take in these like visual or sound <laughs> or whatever and convert it to what it understanding, right? And and it understanding using a reference point. Because somebody have taught it at one point, is it blue, is it green, is it whatever, right? Mm -hmm. We have to have a reference for a more part. Mm -hmm. Like if you just have a human putting on planet, say, Mars, with no other human contact, that brain, that brain might completely develop a different way to best adapt that person to understand the surrounding of that person, right? Without culture, the brain is like kind of lost for the most part. Right. Yes. And luckily for us that we are social animals, so we really rely on our social network and on that to make sense of the war for the most part. Yeah. Kind of gets back to what we were talking about earlier, too, about how we think that the world we're perceiving is the objective world, or the yeah. way that the world actually is. But it's actually just the world that our brain has been conditioned to, in the yes. way that you were just saying. Yes. We don't know how much of reality is actually getting in. Yes. We perceive a particular color spectrum, yeah. and other animals perceive a different color spectrum. So. The idea that our perception of the world is it the represents true the true world, yeah. that's no. so pretentious. It is very pretentious. And human are pretentious because we effectively thought that we think that we're the only intelligent species out there, right? Because we, mm -hmm. like, we couldn't find anything, therefore there might not be anything. Which probability say that this chain is really high that there's going to be another one somewhere. Mm -hmm. It just may be already extinct by the time you see it. The light takes time to travel, right? Right, so, so we're never actually perceiving the present then, right? Mm -hmm. Anything we always look at the past for the most part. Right. Even the because it takes time for you to process any yeah. stimuli in Everything your brain. And once you when it, once it enters consciousness, yeah. what you're seeing has already Happened. transpired. Yes. The sunlight, even it's <laughs> as fast as the sunlight, is only take it take time for the sunlight to get onto Earth, right? <laughs> Does that mean so. it's impossible to truly live in the moment or be present? That's again, it's, there's no, there's no truly can only live in the moment, right? Because that would be like you just shut down everything else. It would be really hard. Um, so that's why we pra practitioner just trying to living in the moment for the most part. Otherwise, we'll be enlightened already. That's the whole point of enlightenment, right? Enlightenment is that some, at some point somehow you just like get it, mm -hmm. and then. Maybe then that's why when you get it, you're no longer in this weird concept. Like, why do we? I'm asking the question anyway because I get it now. Right. At some point, I was. I'm dubious of whether true enlightenment is possible. Like whether you can actually achieve a sense of sustained enlightenment, or whether there, I guess whether there's an end goal to meditation, because that would be the end goal. But if there's not a true yes. state of enlightenment. Then it's just a constant journey that has no ending. Yeah, right? it's just a is. But the journey is very good, right? For the most part, for yeah. your mental health and for the mental health others around you. Mm -hmm. So why not doing it? For the most part, I think. Right, but I guess the concept of enlightenment seems antithetical to the goal of Buddhism, as I understand it. Because yeah. the goal is not mm -hmm. the ultimate goal is not to become too attached to things, because yes. things are always changing. Yes. So. Don't try to change things. Be content with whatever is currently characterizing yeah. your present consciousness, but don't become too attached to it yes. because everything's always changing. Yes. And most suffering in life is born out of attaching yourselves to yes. things that are inherently fleeting. Yes. Once you detach yourself mm -hmm. from everything, including your thoughts, mm -hmm. then you can just kind of reach this state of 
sustainable contentment. But the idea of enlightenment is that there's this state that you want to get to and just live in. But that's but again, that's antithetical to yeah. not becoming too attached to some states. Yes. yes. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, I understand sure your point. But, well. but um, again, that's the point of enlightenment again. Like when you get there, you just get it. And then you will no longer want it or whatever. <laughs> like, right? So maybe... I'm clearly I, not enlightened. <laughs> so of course I'm not enlightened. Otherwise, I'll be like... Yeah. Like rupture. Is that a word? Just, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Rapture. There you go. Oh, rapture. right. Rapture, yeah. Yeah, because I'm just rapture like... Rapture is a word too. Yeah, rapture out my body or something like that just light emanating from your body <laughs> like yo how out how is it bro it seems awesome yeah <laughs> circling um circling back to the idea that our brain is kind of constraining the reality that gets in mm-hmm. yeah there's this idea that's similar in this book called the doors of perception by alvis huxley and most you know most people think that the brain is generating consciousness there was no consciousness then the brain gave rise to consciousness but he turns that idea on its head and he says actually the brain is just restricting the cosmic consciousness say that we were talking about and when people take psychedelics say because the doors of perception he just takes a bunch of psychedelics and like describes his experiences Mm -hmm. um you're actually entering a higher level of reality the brain is kind of opening up I i forget the metaphor that he uses he calls it a valve, I think. Yes. So it's a valve that's just opening up and letting more of the true consciousness enter in. Yes. So maybe that's the whole point of meditation. Maybe you somehow train your brain with sake to open the gate one day at a time. Right. Right. And I'm not saying I necessarily believe that about yeah. psychedelics. Yeah. It could be that it's just an altered state of consciousness, yes. not a higher state of but consciousness. But I, I do think that our brain, for the most part, restrict our understanding of the world, right? Because mm-hmm. it tried to protect us, for the most part because certain understanding might cause damage to the body. And maybe it's no best from evolution that maybe we can just like stop there. I don't know. Yeah. There's a lot of question out there. <laughs> um, so what do you do just to radically change subjects? Well, not radically, but to change subjects. What are you doing in the lab on a daily basis in grad school? Okay, so um, we have animal model study. So we usually have like, usually we'll schedule like three months of animal studies. And then when we harvest animal, it's three months for us to process all the data, set the tissue where you have to like turn into DNA or turn into like, like slide or turn what into- What animals like, are you using? What so thing? my model is a shoulder injury model mm-hmm. and I have to use rabbit, but the volumetric loss, which is the, 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 the battle wound model is using rat because rat um, is really good at fighting infections. So you take a oh, bunch yeah, of a junk of meat out of their body. Um, in other animal, they can be violently. Um, their immune system would like violently attack certain things, and they might not survive. Right. Yeah, with that much damage. Uh, but rat is really good at healing. Um, they just excellent model for like any really heavy injury. But for rabbit, uh, we use it because it's mimic the 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 fatty shoulder in human, because certain injury will cause it. Certain animal to turn ma- muscle into fat. Mm-hmm. And rabbit do that for some reason. So that's why we use that model in my study. Okay. Um, so it's really, so the rabbit that we do is about, so usually it's like 16 weeks, right, of actual animal study. Mm-hmm. And you keep them alive and study and do all these model, and then you utilize them and just take out whatever part you do. Usually the blood, you take the blood, um, you take that muscle out, and then you process on the data, you get these like massive amount of information, right? And then you have to analyze the data, right? After you analyze the data, you put into a more of concise what I think important, kind of like information, figure, graph, or like um, just visually more represented of your data, like concise, like summarize down, and then you mm-hmm. write, right? Like, because we go to conference every year, so we have to have something to show that we find or whatever every could, year. Could you describe a particular study that you did and what the goal of it was? So right now we're doing, so it's um, to treat basically fatty um, muscle shoulder. Basically, uh, it's kind of weird that when uh, these, ra- when these, it's called rotator cup tear. Yeah, and, and basically, just fatty muscle shoulder is the thing that we were talking about earlier. So basically the, the stem cell is kind of like somehow being signal to turn into fat cell now instead of turning to muscle cell right and we were like what's why why is that doing that yeah but in human Go shoulder, to muscle, bro. but in human shoulders do that mm-hmm. and As we're trying older, to right. uh, we're trying to um, use therapies say right now uh, the the 
the buzzword in the in the regenerative medicine now is exocellular matrix, which mm-hmm. is the thing that surround your cells, that not cells, that giving signal to cells to do certain things, mm-hmm. right? So we getting some component out that, and we use um, human donut muscle to get those component out, mm-hmm. and then we use that as therapy for treatings. In the sense, it's not treating; it's basically tricking the cells or signal the cells that are already there to do the job that it should do. Mm-hmm. or just make it do a faster job, mm-hmm. right? Because cells are lazy. They don't want to do anything unless they have to, for the most part. <laughs> got to motivate them. Yeah, got to motivate them. <laughs> Throw yeah. a bucket of water on them at 6 a.m. <laughs> How developed is this technology right now? Um, so exocellular matrix is actually, um, you can use it already because it doesn't require clinical trial for the most part because it would come from the same um, patients, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So say if I like um, take a junk of my skin out and digest it, and get it into like a goo of extracellular matrix. I can inject it back into the sun injury that I I have, right? Because mm-hmm. skin is easy to get, um, and then that will activate the sun thing, and that might help with it. And people are only using it in certain um, countries that they think that it worked for them. So. And there aren't that many people in this particular. If you, you said this, one of the reasons you went into mm-hmm. the study of muscles, we'll call it. Because there's not a, not a lot of people doing muscle injuries, mm-hmm. especially. Um, Massive injury or injury that caused chronic uh, conditions. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a smart thing to do as an academic in general. Let's yeah, see, most academic do that. They yeah. just pick the one that nobody do. You find some area because yeah. it's easy to make a big contribution in that. But area. it also have to be um, impactful for the most part. Because think about it, seventy percent plus of this geriatric population will have it. Mm-hmm. So you effectively improve the quality of life for a lot of people without giving them. Um, opioid for the most part because they will have to take painkiller for the rest of their life mm-hmm. when that onset happened and it's irreversible and it's progressive mm-hmm. so when the muscle turns into fat um, it's just going to get more fat and more fat and more fat and more fat until mm-hmm. you lose complete functions mm-hmm. and it happened um, so. if, if we take this stem cell technology to its logical conclusion it's not stem cell again we activating the stem cell to do certain things but we don't take the stem cell out and do anything to it. Right, right, right. Yeah, Yeah, I understand that. Um, But if we take that technology to its logical conclusion, like we said, like you said, you're not, you don't want to make humans immortal. You don't want to completely reverse the process of aging, but it could, it potentially, could someone get to the end of their life and not look like an old person? They could look young. Effectively, yes. They could look young their whole lives and then they'll just die looking young, something like that. Yeah, but because think about it, um, the easiest part to change is soft tissue, right? Which is muscle and skin. So those two things we can do likely first. But the rest of your body, heart, all these organs, the bone, the brain specifically, those are really hard things to work with. Mm-hmm. Now, look-wise, which is the two main things that you can see, the look is muscle and skin, right, for the most part. Yeah. And those things we can effectively change within our lifetime, I think. that It's going to be a common procedure to go in like, so I'm going to get rejuvenized. Yeah, we're going to just more rejuvenize. Natural kind of- yeah, we're just going to trick our stem cell to rejuvenate our whole entire body, yeah. even though it doesn't want it to. Of course, it's going to take massive amount of energies or whatever to do that, but effectively, we can like, have a lot of energies now, right? That's so. cool. So maybe I'll never live to see myself as an old man, even yes. though I'll be old. You'll be old, right? But everything inside you is old. Everything um, inside me is old, but I'm just glowing on the outside. I guess. <laughs> no, but that's that's crazy. We might not yeah. li- see ourselves as old men no, ever. Yeah, it, and it, I think it can happen within our lifetime, right? Might be not like commercially available, and but you're it's working good. towards that future. I would be the very small sand in that whole entire pool of people that like working really hard to work. If that makes sense. Now you're gonna lead the field. Uh, I <laughs> now I d- the, the second point we're gonna make. Partly re- the reason why I want to go back and get a PhD because I do want to work mm-hmm. to the point where I get enough skill and I guess to get to draft and uh, help make guideline policy for science engineering technologies, right? Once you get your PhD, is there some other ideal kind of work that you'd like to be doing? Yes, I really want to work for some sort of national lab mm-hmm. that um, say for the most part, they don't come up with new novel process, but they're basically making sure that all these novel processes are kept in check, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. And they're trying to like go back and study them and see, make, make sure that nothing is like overlooked or things that not ethically be, bioethic is a thing, right? So ethically compromise, basically. So I want to work in those labs and 
of course, eventually, if you work in the national lab, you will get to the point of like progressively, you have to make policy and make guidelines for other labs to follow, or the whole entire um, Earth effectively, if you progressive toward like working for the UN or whatever, right? Okay, so in this I ideal scenario with the position that you occupy not involved doing lab research anymore? It would just be overseeing other people, kind of a higher up position? Because at some point I know that when I get older, I will no longer come up with like novel idea anymore, right? Cause How do I you know that? Because That's the brain, no, because we know that at aging, um, our brain are only capable so much and it's take injury just like anything else, the muscle, the skin, it will take injury because <laughs> everything is degenerated constantly yeah. in the state of degenerated, right? You have to interfere to make it regenerate. When is the sense. brain at its optimal level during the course of a human life? So let average? me go back and say this. Um, there's a thing called senescence, and that's when your cell die, right? Mm -hmm. But averagely speaking, most people replacing things fast enough that until the age of 25 where you started to replacing slower than when your body degenerated. Right. So as, after 25, effectively everything in your body is degenerating faster than the, the rate that you can replace it with. So 25 is the peak? Yeah. I'm just almost at the peak. I'm 23 yeah. right now. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. So This is a question I should have asked you at the beginning, but what motivated this love in the first place? Where did this start for you? Um, so for some reason, I've always intrigued by the process of aging. When I was a child, I was... Remember, this is what I always remember this when I was five or six years. It kept me up at night asking myself, why do people age and why do people die? Why do yeah. people suffer so much from this like, aging process? Doing philosophy. Right? And I was five and six. And so it's continually bugged me. But, and I got into chemistry and I really love chemistry. And I actually become a chemical engineer. Worked for five years and really enjoy my job actually. Um, but I just hate the corporate culture. Where did you work? I worked for a company um, that extracted. Um, edible oil out like um, or processing waste um, agriculture product oh, okay. basically yeah in Arkansas oh right um, right yeah and uh, and I just I liked it because challenging and it's like very kind of like hippie hipster because we trying to get rid of waste right by turning them into like useful product um, but and what were you doing there what were your so I'm an engineer uh, I'm a, I'm a it's called, it's just a plant engineer where you go in and like help improve process. Make, for engineer, we need to make things cheaper mm -hmm. every day, right? Yeah. And then I also work with R&D to make things more, I guess, to use more waste, if that makes sense. Because there's always going to be waste if that, for any process. So yeah. how do we use the waste of the waste to make something else? Okay. So you will always generate waste, but you can make it smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's the daily job for most engineers, just how to make the waste as small as possible and improve efficiency. Like if you have 65%, how can I do 65.1? How can I go 65.11%? And as you make the waste smaller, do you use what's not waste anymore for something else, for a different purpose? Yes, repurpose part of the waste, basically, right? And so what are some of those purposes? So for example, um, so the company I work for is the, happened to be one, the largest rice producer in the whole entire US and North America. So they produce a lot of whole. Right, the, the outer part of the rice that you don't eat. Um, so that can be turned into um, silicon because they have really high percentage of silicon. Um, and silicon, when it, in a pure form, it can be used in like electronic devices and solar panels and all kind of stuff, right? But to get to that point, you have to use a lot of energy to extract it out. Now, that's where the engineer come in and say, okay, well, how can I make it so that it economically makes sense? That people will still buy it and pay for it and I still make a profit. Right? Mm -hmm. So that's all engineering do is just asking how can I make it cheaper so that I can make it more accessible to more people. And people wow. have to buy my product, yeah. That's cool. Yes. But you just didn't like the culture at the job? I don't, I don't like the culture because uh, effectively I work as an engineer two days a week and I go to meeting the, last, the rest three days to explain to people why I did that. Mm -hmm. right? And then that's kind of wasteful, I think. You just want to keep working. You don't want to explain yourself. Yeah. And also, uh, because uh, working for corporate, you have to have make a profit, right? So <coughs> say if you don't make any profit for this project, you can work for it for two years to make all the planning stage happen. And then say, mm -hmm. like, oh, at the end, it doesn't get enough profit. We're going to kill it. I just wasted two years on getting everything there. Did you have a lot of freedom in choosing your own projects? It need to get... I can be innovative within, within the field that I have. So the ways I have a hope, then I only can work with hope. Mm -hmm. I cannot just like, oh, I'm going to go find new ways to work with, right? Mm -hmm. I, whatever ways I have, I have to work with that. But the, uh, yeah, I can be innovative on how I'm going to approach 
the ways. So was there a moment of revelation where you realized that you needed to switch to biomedical engineering as opposed to chemical engineering? I think that I was kind of unhappy after like the first half the time, like two years into it, right? I really liked it, but I was just unhappy because I think it's waste my time. But I just continued to do it because of money and all that stuff, right? And I, I always know that I'm going to go back to grad school after the first two years. Mm-hmm. It just when is the right time to do it. Was this the first job that you got out of undergrad? Yeah, so I go straight to work as an engineer after I get my undergrad, basically. Gotcha. Um, and most engineers do that for the most part because it's pretty, still in the field, it's pretty easy to get jobs for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Interesting. Yes. All right, man. I think we yeah, talked for like an hour or so. I think we talked a lot. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> uh, thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate yeah, it. No problem at all. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. All right. Thanks for drooling me. Yeah. <laughs> Till next time.